Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. About 35% of our kids are proficient in reading. It doesn't have to be that way, but it does mean you have to make an effort to get those marginal gains because that's what we mean by it works. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're returning to our discussion about reading instruction. As I have mentioned in previous episodes, the Council of Chief State School Officers has asked its members to make reading instruction a key focus. This is the organization that represents state school superintendents and commissioners, so this is a very big deal. I have linked to the council's report in the show notes so you can go and read it for yourself, but at the core, it is asking all state school superintendents to organize their work and the work of their departments around improved reading instruction. It urges its members to commit to what it calls evidence-based practices and a commitment to equity and student outcomes. a highly unusual move for this organization and is part of what prompted us to plan this series of episodes about reading. We have asked two people to help think through some of the implications of what CCSSO has called for. The first is Donald Joseph Bolger, who is a neuroscientist and an associate professor at the Department of Human Development and Quantitative Methodology at the University of Maryland. I became acquainted with Dr. Bolger in January when he organized a summit of superintendents and senior administrators, local and state policymakers, and professors of education in Maryland. He was trying to nudge Maryland to do what the Council of Chief State School Officers is calling on all states to do, and he has important insights to share. Our second guest hardly needs an introduction to anyone involved in the field of reading instruction. Timothy Shanahan is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was founding director of the UIC Center for Literacy. He is past president of the International Literacy Association, and for this conversation, it's important to note that he helped lead the National Reading Panel. That panel was convened at the request of Congress to evaluate research on the teaching of reading. Dr. Shanahan, I'm going to call you a friend of the podcast because you were part of an episode back in season two. I'll link to it in the show notes. Welcome back. Uh, The reason I said it's important for this conversation to note that you helped lead the National Reading Panel, Dr. Shanahan, is that the Council of Chief State School Officers, CCSSO, drew very heavily on that report. It called for state school leaders to incorporate the lessons of the Reading Panel report and asked them to ensure that reading instruction in their states emphasized the five elements of reading instruction that the panel report identified as important. Those five elements are phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension strategies. My question for you, Dr. Shanahan, is the National Reading Panel identified those five elements of reading instruction 20 years ago. Why is the CCSO talking about them now? Well, education 
uh, it works like a pendulum quite often. Uh, you know, you get the these these wonderful swings. Uh, in 2000, when we came out with that report and indicated the, the importance of those five things, there was a lot of interest in it at the time. Uh, states mandated certain things. The federal government, uh, you know, put in, you know, at certain policies for Title I programs and so on and so forth. And what we saw uh, for a, a few years, uh, half a decade or so, the, the, the NAICS scores started to climb uh, particularly among young children. And so things were going well. And then, uh, you know, over time, people lose interest. Uh, other things come along. Uh, new programs are created that maybe don't pay so much attention to the research that they become the new fad. And so over, you know, 10-year period, a 15-year period, uh, school districts start getting away from those those essential uh, abilities that, that need to be taught, that if they're taught, the kids do better. Uh, and, and so you start to see, um, as we've seen, reading scores stop going up. Uh, you know, they, they've been uh, languishing and in some places even going down, but, you know, overall languishing, just not getting any better. And so uh, quite rightly, uh, uh, CCSO, uh, SSO uh, decided to show some leadership in this area and, and to try to move things along. And, and unfortunately, it's not, oh, there are all these new vistas that we've got to take on. It's no, there are these real essentials that we've, we've lost sight of and that we've drifted away from and we've got to get back to. That doesn't mean there aren't additional things that could be done or should be done. But if you're not doing the most basic things, uh, you know, kids are, are really at, at risk. And, and so, uh, yeah, they're embracing an old uh, report, but in, in, in fairness, uh, research isn't like a milk carton, you know, it doesn't have a, an expires by date. Uh, you know, we don't have to throw it out after a couple of years. Uh, it, it, uh, the only thing that can make uh, research expire one of two things, either the conditions change so dramatically that those studies just aren't relevant anymore, or frankly, new research comes along that helps you to understand it in a different way or that identifies new, uh, you know, new approaches that perhaps would be even more effective. Uh, in this particular case, those, those five things that we studied then, there have been a number of studies of each of those over these these ensuing two decades, and they've just it, it, it essentially strengthened our, our commitment to them, the, the importance of those. So uh, it might look puzzling that uh, a prestigious group would embrace a, a report uh, of you know, two decades ago, but it is, it's such a basic document, uh, it makes a lot of sense. So it the CCSSO, and boy, that's a hard acronym, I think, to say. The, uh, the CCSSO talks a, a lot about the science of reading. Is that identical with the five elements of what you identified in the National Reading Panel? Or, or is, there, is there a different definition that, that listeners should know about? Well, the, the term uh, science of reading, or at the time when we were doing that report, we were talking about scientifically based reading research and, and you know, evidence-based reading instruction. I, I really do think that um, we, we shouldn't 
think of, of uh, science of reading or any of those terms as meaning, oh, that means you teach phonics or that means, those are really about how do you determine what you should teach. Uh, and we rely on, on research evidence. We rely on uh, a, a, a body of scientific uh, uh, methods to determine what our policy should be is really what science of reading is about. And it turns out, of course, that in reading, uh, reading the, the research shows that, boy, if you give explicit instruction to beginning readers in something like phonemic awareness or phonological awareness, kids do better. If you give kids explicit teaching in decoding, they do better. You know, some kids can figure it out on their own and that's really great, but if you don't give that instruction explicitly, a lot of other kids languish. That's a problem. Uh, teaching kids to be fluent readers, to actually read text so that it sounds like language, really important. Uh, and, you know, teaching reading comprehension, teaching kids how to think effectively while they're reading really matters, helps. Teaching kids the language, helping them uh, know the meanings of, of more and more words. All those things have been found to quite consistently across large numbers of studies to confer learning advantages to kids. And so that's why we, we do them because we have so much evidence saying that it confers a learning advantage to kids. That's what the science of reading is about. And, and it, it, it means that that list could change. You can add things to it. And in fact, uh, I think uh, the research uh, these days would be very supportive of, gee, in, include writing instruction in all of that, because it, it's good that kids write, of course, but it also improves uh, several of those items that I just talked about. Uh, it, it can have a positive impact on kids' comprehension. It can have a positive impact on kids' decoding skills and so on. So uh, essentially that notion of a science of reading is quite simply we want evidence that something that actually helps kids before we commit to it. And uh, we'll build our policies and our programs and our efforts around those things that have been, have repeatedly paid off for kids. Uh, you know, it's, it's really straightforward. It, then you get into the nitty gritty of well, what kinds of studies and what kind of research and how long does it have to go on? And, and that's important. But it's not real important at the policy level. It, it's <laughs> those are the kinds of things that uh, uh, you know can be worked out by the scientific community, and, and uh, you know we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time on that kind of thing today. Well, it seems to me that <clears throat> there there are actually two kinds of sciences, right? There's the science of how people read, and then there's the science of how to teach people how to read. And you're talking about that you're talking about the science of how to teach people how to read which also has as you've told me in the past a bit of art to it it's not there's it that's not just science there's art there's craft there's there's teacher judgment there's all kinds of things that goes into there are all kinds of things that go into teaching children how to read but the science of um how people read uh dr bulger as a neuroscientist that's that's kind of your uh, uh, your field. Um, can you talk about what you study and why it isn't always immediately applicable to what Dr. Shanahan studies? <laughs> yeah, and, and um, it's been um, an interesting process for me as I, I come from a, a straight, you know, kind of a cognitive science, um, neuroscience background. 
in my research and, and in my training. Uh, and then I, I've, you know, as I came to Maryland and, and joined the College of Education and quickly um, moved into some of the teacher prep courses and having to become more um, accustomed. And it's, it is, uh, you know, I've described it as a little bit of a fish out of water. And uh, I think Mark Seidenberg has written a lot about this on his blog. And um, this, uh, so being, you know, and I've, I've really embraced it over the past couple of years, as Mark's called for, but, you know, I've, I've been doing it for the past 12 years, but being a, a scientist, uh, a reading scientist, trying to train teachers, and and because there are different languages, and it really is kind of difficult to translate, and, and the translating the research findings directly into um, practice. And my wife is a special ed teacher of twenty years, so you know I get it at home. <laughs> you know, I, I get the lectures from her. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. There's an art um, to teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and rightfully so telling me, you don't know what it's like being in front of and special ed, especially, you know, uh, eight or 20, you know, children who are struggling and, and how to maintain control and, and uh, of, of the classroom and all those things. So there is a, that art is, uh, encompasses many pieces beyond just the cognitive skills of reading. Um, so I've been, uh, you know, keenly aware of that, like I said, over the past 12 years of my career. Um, but it is uh, sometimes difficult to, to make the translation. But in other cases, you know, there are um, places. And in fact, my um, a lot of my research, I mean, even my doctoral work was was looking at different ways of, of just doing word instruction, you know, doing a, a componential, you know, Kind of phonics-based approach versus a holistic approach, and looking at the effects in the brain, and 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 there are robust. So you do see, and you know whether it's adults as uh, you know as I've tested, but I've even you know recently this has been tested in children, and you see the same effect um, where it's um, the ability. And and just to say something is better is is hard to codify in the science. You don't say it's better. You say you know what are the effects on. And so, um, for instance. Uh, if you uh, teach a, a child uh, or an adult, even uh, you know the, the the letter sound component, say in a language like Korean, which is also alphabetic, right? They can um, they can then generalize to all sorts of other words. So if you teach them, you know, to break apart the word cat, you know, they can then you know uh, ease more easily and what we call bootstrap or self-teach as David Sher would say into fat, hat, sat, bat, you know, and, and, uh, in the, directly in the research, you know, if you, if, if all they're kind of memorizing is just whole words, you know, each word kind of looks like a Chinese character to them. Uh, and so you'd have to memorize thousands and thousands of words. And what you see is, is these, um, learning curves in, in two different approaches that are very different, but you can, uh, you can see the, uh, the, the benefits of, of getting kids to just memorize a whole bunch of words, you get immediate gains, but it doesn't transfer and it doesn't, and it's hard to hold, you know, and there's a, in, in reading Chinese, the, the rate of acquisition of, of words, visual words is slower because you have to memorize a lot more holistic characters. Uh, this is because Chinese uh, characters are in fact pictographs. They're not, phon most of them 
are yeah there, there's a yeah there's a, there's a little bit but there's a combination but but they've been generally called logographs or pictographs but but there is you know uh there is a um, bit of there's some phonemic information there there's characters and radicals but in general people you know characterize it as a pictographic or logographic system but anyway that so that that shows the the effect of you know why it's in especially in an alphabetic system um that you know learning and and like i said this is focusing on phonics but we can get into other things like vocabulary and other things but that how the science can transfer the science can um, in, in many ways can tell us something about why things work and how things work. I do worry sometimes that the word science is now being used in a number of, uh, uh, in a number of cases uh, as kind of a bludgeon. Science says, instead of saying, well, like this, the research supports doing this, at least until we have other evidence. I mean, scientists never talk about, science says do this. I've never heard a scientist say that. <laughs> um, they're always much more measured, and no offense, it it is incredibly frustrating for a layperson to listen to a scientist be so careful. And yet, I'm now hearing a lot of lay people saying, "Science says." That's not how scientists talk. You talk like scientists talk, right? <laughs> exactly, and, and it's it's interesting because um, in teaching one of my uh, first years of te teaching teacher prep, um, I was teaching about language acquisition and reading acquisition, and uh, one of my students you know, raised her hand and said, "Well, why do we have to talk about all these theories? Why can't you just tell me the facts?" And it, you know, and that's as a scientist, you know, my my uh, my approach is to to talk about how we different ways of uh, that people have thought about these things in different ways that the evidence supports and the data supports doing things this way, or the, these are the effects that you get. And, um, but it's difficult for people who want, uh, you know, who just want to know, tell, this is how you do it. And this is, tell me what to do. And, and this is how you do it. And, and this is the silver bullet. And um, and this has happened, you know, I've taught a master's, uh, master's students uh, in Montgomery County who are teachers. And, um, I, you know, I've had these conversations with them as well. Although I think at that point, then they start, it's, after they've been in the classroom for a couple of years, they start to get, okay, so, you know, there are benefits of understanding the different ideas and concepts and, and theories to some degree. Um, but but in many ways, a lot of times what they're looking for is, is just, well, just tell me what we'll do and what will work. And, and so that's, it's hard because that's not the world that we as scientists live in. Um, but I also think, you know, uh, uh, somebody quoted a, um, a Dewey quote about, about educators will go to their graves with particular theories or particular ideas. Uh, of how to do pedagogical approaches. And, and um, but I think it's one of the things that I think helping teachers be open to understanding that evidence will move or evidence will suggest different things, you know, uh, and just take the pandemic, you know, in terms of, you know, well, you said masks, we shouldn't wear masks. Now you say we should wear masks. Well, evidence changes in a, in a, in this rapidly changing science or this rapidly changing uh, but but that's the thing is that that science you know we we accumulate the evidence and and sometimes evidence will change and say oh well there's you know it's looking like we should you know maybe do this instead or well and and so much of this is contextual right so 
um, as the science improves, you the the contextual understanding gets deeper and deeper. And you know, in this kind of situation, you might want to think about this. In that kind of situation, but Tangie, that this must must sound very resonant. Like, oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it does. And I think about As a long time um, English teacher. I should yeah, say. Yes. Exactly. Um, particularly with, you know, with what Dr. Bolger said about teachers wanting the answer. You know, we've, we've structured the environment for there to be an absolute end game to it. And so we've stuck it into a 10 month finite box. And then we've given everybody, you know, windows of operation. And then we wonder why people want to tell me the thing to do because I've got 10 months to get that thing done and I've got 20 something kids sitting in front of me. And so you just got to tell me what to do because my box is going to (laughs) shut. And so, you know, we've structured the environment in this way. And I just wonder, you know, we talk about the ways in which the brain, you know, receives information, gets information, and we grow our dendrites and all those fun things that we talk about. And, And we know that there is neuroscience that is contextually driven, but then there are just some absolutes that we can say have really strong effects. I wonder about knowing all of this, why do we still continue to see such disparities across racial lines? You know, we continue to see, we know that there are pedagogies and we know that there are theories and we know that there are structures that work, that, you know, the majority of students are able to learn how to read right? If they are taught to crack the code, they can learn how to read. But we still continue to see wide reaching, seemingly entrenched disparities along racial and economic lines as though your race and economics then precedes your brain's ability to absorb the process of reading. So I'd love it if both either can talk about why we think this is still one going on and two widely acceptable. Um, I'll jump in. I mean, first of all, a, a lot of uh, there's there's more to reading instruction than those five elements that we talked about. Um, you know, one element is quality teaching. Which kids are likely to get the least uh, uh, experienced teachers? Which kids are likely to get the teachers with the the lowest amount of training? Uh, They're going to be uh, inner city kids. Uh, They're going to be rural kids. They're going to be African-Americans. They're going to be high poverty kids. I mean, that's the the reason for that is because of our policies. We set up policies that that, uh, essentially reward a teacher for pulling out of that kind of a school. So quite often teachers start there. They, they learn some things about teaching, and after they get three or four years' experience, they get pulled out to a, if, if they're good, they get pulled out to a, uh, a more advantaged classroom. Uh, <laughs> that uh, isn't due to phonics. That isn't due to, uh, you know, gee, there, we know all this stuff about the brain. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It's just, uh, you know, we've organized ourselves with contracts and unions and you know, different kinds of policies so that it works that way. Uh, that, that's one answer to it. Uh, another you know, answer to it is, in fact, uh, those schools, those high poverty schools, the schools that are serving kids who so need uh, good instruction and thoughtful instruction, 
uh, frankly, they're no more likely to follow a science of reading than, you know, anybody else is. Uh, you know, Dr. Bolger was talking about, you know, how teachers uh, make commitments to particular approaches. And, and, and you know, that, that happens in, in wealthy communities. It ha happens in, in, in high poverty communities. But there's a difference there. In, in wealthy communities, uh, moms and dads, uh, usually highly educated, lots of resources so that kids are getting taught at home. Uh, I, I've, I've got to say, my grandchildren uh, have not languished during the uh, the, the pandemic uh, because uh, not just because they they can get online with the schools, but mom and dad are there uh, to to do the the teaching and and feel very comfortable doing that. Uh, and and so those kinds of resources are available. Gee, if things aren't working for my kid. I'm going to go hire a tutor. I'm going to take them, you know, wherever it's going to, I can to, to get my child's uh, needs met. Uh, you know, you take a, a single mom, maybe 23, 24 years old, and she's got a, a youngster in kindergarten or first grade, and the school says she's the, the, the uh, youngster isn't doing so well. And mom's going, gee, I didn't graduate from high school. Uh, I don't know anything about teaching reading. I don't have any resources to, to take this youngster some down to the university clinic where they're gonna take care of them. Uh, I don't have lots of friends and family who are highly educated, know a lot about teaching and, and feel comfortable and have a lot of books and resources. And, and so those kids get uh, uh, you know, really kind of creamed by the, all that social uh, situation that, that they're embedded in. And, and so, uh, Science of reading, following that is really, really important and will help large numbers of kids. But there are other education policies that either support those kinds of things or undermine them. Well, and last week, um, Nell Duke was on and she said, well, a lot of people want to blame the schools of education. So I'm going to talk to the person who's at a school of education for a minute. <laughs> you know, she said, a lot of people just want to blame the schools of education so let's just take that piece of it. She she went on to say something quite different afterward. But um, can you talk a bit about the the training that teachers get in uh, uh, in in teaching reading, Dr. Bolger? And it, it varies. It, it varies greatly. It can vary with within a um, within a college of education. You know, and and in terms of I. Uh, teach to uh, an early childhood. Um, we have an early childhood program in my department, and that's the group that I, I teach. Uh, it's early childhood special ed, and um, and, and uh, we also have a special ed program, and, and the special ed uh, faculty teach them. And then we have the um, elementary ed program and the secondary ed program, and they're taught by another group of faculty. And so the three programs there are while the state of Maryland has standards and the, for what's supposed to be taught in the literacy courses, they're very different. You could, those courses could look very different in those three programs, even if they are covering say between early childhood, special ed and um, elementary ed still covering kids between say third grade and fifth grade, right? Or at least there's three years of overlap that, you know, all three of those programs would cover. Um, or uh, you know, or between first grade, sorry, first grade and third grade, um, but which are the critical years that we talked about structured literacy and and a lot of these basic skills that we we kind of 
tend to focus on. Um, so the, uh, but I've been working with different groups like the Barksdale Institute and other places where, who are looking at, you know, they obviously um, looked at colleges of education in Mississippi and, and now in other states. And uh, this has been a, an ongoing effort to see um, what are the approaches that are being um, taught? How are teachers, uh, pre-service teachers being taught? But, you know, as, um, you know, something that uh, there was a, um, some work that followed the National Reading Panel that said, well, despite what's being taught in the colleges of education, you know, and, and I think about this, you know, uh, uh, you know, a working class family, you know, carpenters and, and uh, electricians, and they say, oh, yeah, you, you take your courses, your coursework, but who's, who are you really learning from? You're learning from your apprenticeship. You're learning from, you know. And, and the second you get out there, they tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what they told you in the, you know, but this is how we do things in the field. And so, you know, who do, you're going to trust the person in the field. And and so, I mean, there is a lot of, uh, you know, I, I think that there is some um, discussion about what colleges of education, you know, and how teacher prep is going on. And, I you know, I've been, you know, working on that within my own state and across states, as I said, with the Barksdale Institute. But um, there are, you know, we have to have these conversations of are we aligning that in terms of the mentorship that that are that's going on in schools? And I think one of the, the things that Mississippi and Carrie Wright has done, uh, talking about the CCSSO, she, you know, has been leading that effort for uh, the, the chief school officers, um, is, you know, that they established a coaching network, you know, so that uh, there's a network of people who are rooted in the type of instruct approaches and, and the science and, um, and that uh, there's a, a tentacles going out throughout this, you know, from the state department of education out through the different school systems um, of a, of a network of coaches so that, you know, when these new teachers come in, they have a mentor or a set, you know, there's a hierarchy of mentorship that they can get that where, and that's one of the things I really, you know, uh, wanted to establish in Maryland is, is to have something like this, where um, we can have this uh, kind of uh, octopus or, you know, with the tentacles of coaches that um, a coaching network that can go out through the different school systems um, so that we can have expert teachers in every school. Uh, so instead of kind of, you know, the, the, teachers going out into their apprenticeships or becoming a first or second year teacher and just kind of being told, well, this is how we do it using pedagogy. That's not, um, not going to work or shown, you know, shown to be ineffective or less effective is that they, they have somebody to look to, to get that mentorship. Yeah. Because traditionally and Tanji, actually, I, I've never asked you about your student teaching experience, but, um, but traditionally, uh, teachers go out, they have their student teachers to some teacher. And that teacher, depending on what school they're going to and how well they're vetted, that teacher could be just somebody who wants an extra ha- pair of hands, who really shouldn't be a mentor teacher because they're not particularly successful. Um, but they, you know, they want to be able to go to the bathroom when they want to go to the bathroom, and a student teacher lets them do that, right? Um, and that's not to say they shouldn't be able to go to the bathroom, but um, but they're not necessarily really very good mentors for student teachers. So you're talking about kind of overlaying onto that. But Tanji, did you 
What was your student teacher experience? Well, good you ask. I actually didn't have one because uh-huh. I came in through alternate route. So in, in New Jersey and lots of other states, uh, teaching is my second career. I came in through, um, I was a retailer. So I'd worked in a number of um, retailers across the country. And I decided that I wanted to go into teaching after, you know, lots of deliberation and all. I fell and bumped my head and I haven't gotten up yet. So, um, <laughs> um so you snuck so I started, in. Without, I snuck in, but I with, had a with the benefit and the disadvantage. But I, I will tell you, I had um, the Northern New Jersey region where I did my alternate route teaching was one of the top in the nation at 200 course hours that covered such an incredible be- uh, wealth of information. And the school that I went into at the time, I actually had to have a person with me in the classroom. For, for full on 20 days, 20, 30 days before I was able to teach by myself. And so I had the benefit of an incredible retired teacher who was vetted and well-known. And it turns out she actually was my husband's second grade teacher. So she taught my husband how to read. So uh, <laughs> we're pretty fortunate about that. But I had a person who understood how to get kids to read. I was not, I was in a, like fourth grade this is a different grade band. So learning how to learning how to teach kids how to read, I didn't have that um, challenge. I had a different challenge because my students had come to me already knowing how to read. So I had a different uh, you know way to go. But I had repeated visits. I had constant coaching, and so I had a lot of the on the ground work that you would expect in a traditional apprenticeship. And so um, it was actually a really great program. So, so that actually it worked out well. It was actually well. very successful. Um, it's, yeah. It was okay. a great program. For whatever, you know, in that context with that. Uh, that it, in that context, through that program and in that building, because of one of your, you know, strong suits that you talk a lot about, Karen, is leadership. The leadership in that building ensured that my coach met a certain criteria. And that's, so So that leads to another question. Uh, Dr. Shanahan um, and Dr. Bulger, one of the uh, big pushes in the CCSSO report is improving teacher training, particularly in the science of reading. There's one throwaway line about school leaders. And it seems to me that is a real, I mean, uh, Dr. Shanahan and I have talked about this a fair amount. Um, uh, it seems to me that that is a hole in the uh, in the CCSSO report that they that they kind of let leaders they're not they're not saying but but you really need to make sure school leaders understand this stuff because otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah, if you look at leadership training uh, at universities for school administrators, the the fact is. They learn all kinds of things about health and safety and budget and, and important stuff. I, you know, I'm not putting any of that down. <clears throat> they don't get an awful lot of curriculum and instruction. They don't learn an, an awful lot about what works or how to make decisions in these particular areas, despite the fact that research shows the importance of those folks in, in terms of, of a school's success or a school system success. So. Uh, it, it is definitely a hole, and, and CCSSO didn't uh, didn't take it on, and and I you know they shouldn't. It, it, it's it's uh, 
it's a legitimate concern. Teachers certainly have to know more and know particular kinds of things. No question about that. So do their bosses. One of the um, one of the consequences of that, you know, and I, I kind of ran up against this against this, you know, within the first couple of years of of being in a college of ed. But um, I, I was, I might have been working with the master students, and and we were talking about this, and and they told me that their principals, and this is pretty much, I think, across the state of Maryland, um, you know, when they're, you know, they get evaluated and and they're being watched about what they're doing and, um, you know, for their, for their, you know, yearly annual evaluations. Um, if the principal walks into the room and sees you doing whole group instruction, explicit instruction, you are getting, uh, you're getting negative comments. And so the zeitgeist was that you should be doing center-based instruction. You should be doing, um, uh, particular types of instruction uh, that are uh, at the small group level. And like I said, doing whole group is, is explicit instruction, direct instruction was a, was a no-no. And the principals were, were uh, castigating their teachers for it. Now, he, again, what we know from the science is that this, right, the explicit instruction and systematic instruction uh, is, you know, beneficial. And uh, the whether to do a large group or, or small group, I mean, there's a lot of that's a that's a fine tuning that that has to happen class by class, and 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 that all goes into planning. But uh, you know, one of the things that you know I would t- tell my teachers is that you know I, I learned quickly. Well, you're going to get hit for this, but you know the correct approach is the one in which you know you go from an autonomy model, right? That I do, we do, you do, right? And you you know. Uh, this goes back to Vygotsky of, of the, you know, when I teach this, I usually teach Piaget and then teach Vygotsky and, and this zone of proximal development and, and, and try to teach the fact that, right, you release them into, right, you don't send the, the carpenter to build a house when they don't know how to nail in, right, uh, to nail in a, you know, a board, uh, right? So you, you give them that gradual release as you would in any apprenticeship model. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things that you run up against with principals. Well, just um, because I can't help myself from telling this personal story, my kids went to an elementary school where the principal told the teachers, throw out all the phonics materials, throw out all of that. I don't want to see any of it. And, you know, Dr. Shanahan, you were talking about, well, educated parents can really make up for it. I was too stupid to know. Like, I had a five-year-old, the, the school said, oh, well, no, it's fine, we just, you know, they'll pick it up. And uh, the kindergarten teacher had totally bought into what the principal had said. She was brand new. She was brand new. And, of course, she did what the principal said. The first grade teacher, luckily, uh, was a longtime veteran. She shut her door. She pulled out the phonics materials when, you know, when she could. And she didn't pay any attention to the to the negative comments from the principal. But new teachers, they're not gonna they're not gonna have any of that, right? You know, uh, so I I feel I feel very lucky because I didn't know anything about reading instruction then. Now that I know it, I'm terrified about <laughs> I'm like horrified for my daughter. You know, luckily she learned to read. She had <laughs> she had the first grade teacher who who was you know I refer to her as a gorilla teacher, 
But if you don't have, you know, basically pretty brave guerrilla teachers, you're going to have a lot of kids not learning to read. But there are brave guerrilla teachers on the other side, too, who are not going to pay attention to principals who are, you know, or state policies or anything saying, you know, here are the materials you should use. Yeah, well, whatever. You know, like. Well, and they're not going to listen to them because if they are getting the results that their practices have yielded, they don't have any reason to make a different pedagogical decision, right? And so if, if, if the majority of their students are getting results using what, and for them, their results are proven, right? So their results become their evidence just like the quote unquote use of scientific other methods have been shown to get an effect. They're, they're seeing their own effect in real time. And so they're gonna rely on what they see in real time, as opposed to what some person that may be dead 50,000 years ago is gonna tell them what to do, right? Because, because they're getting results, the kind of results that are valued, that's what they're gonna get using their strategies, whether they are whole language, if they are on the whole language bend, then they're going to rely more on those because that's what's in front of them. Really important. I think uh, we can go back to a term. Dr. Bolger, I know you used it. I might have used it when I talked as well. Uh, we talked about uh, it works. It wor you know, what does it mean that something works? And I think that's, uh, there's some confusion over that when it comes to the science of reading. Uh, you know, that's, that's the reason why teachers often don't believe us when we come out and say, gee, you should follow the National Reading Panel, because they can say, my kids are learning to read. You know, Karen says, gee, my kids weren't getting that instruction, but they learn to read. So clearly it's working. What do we actually mean when we say, based on research, uh, you know, teaching uh, oral reading fluency works. And what we mean, I, I think what a lot of people get in their head is, oh, they're saying the kids in that group all learn to read and the kids in the other group, they don't learn to read. That's not actually what we're talking about. <laughs> I think it's really important that we, we sort that out a bit. Uh, we're really talking about marginal advantages, marginal gains. Uh, uh, gee, you know, when kids are getting explicit teaching in that particular thing, on average, they do better, which mean, could mean, you know, a bunch of kids get somewhat higher scores on, on something, uh, whatever that is, some kind of a test that one would assume. Or it might mean that you've taken that group of kids who really do struggle and really aren't doing well, and you've shrunk that group somehow. Gee, you know, normally there are 10 kids out of 100 that aren't really learning to read very well. And, and if you use this method, you get it down to five. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. And so they're marginal improvements. They're not, uh, you know, black and white, one group learns, one group doesn't. And what that means is if you're a, a school principal and you're not getting any complaints from the, the parents in the district and your scores aren't any better or worse than the other schools in the district, so no one's yelling at you about it, uh, don't rock the boat because what works for them is you know, there, there's no obvious problem that's coming to them. Their kids might have an obvious problem 10 years from now when they're leaving high school and can't do the things that they want to be able to do. 
but the school was doing fine. No one's upset about the school. Nobody's putting any pressure on that particular teacher. And of course, uh, no matter how badly you teach reading, there are going to be some kids who are learning to read anyway uh, because of what mom and dad are doing, because the kid is just a really good learner and, and can figure, you know, reading is systematic. You can figure some of it out yourself. And if you're really smart, and, you know, have a few, you know, lucky breaks, you, you can do quite well. And teachers will, and everybody does this, will pick out, oh, see, you know, Johnny's doing great. I don't understand if Johnny can do well, why Mary isn't doing well. You know, it's the same method. Uh, and, and so everybody has an out with this. Uh, the science, though, is, is, you know, especially if you have large numbers of studies, lots of data showing that a particular pattern consistently gives an advantage. It's those advantages that we want to keep adding on to the children. Uh, in, in economic realm, the, the really big company, you know, the, the Walmarts and the, the McDonald's and so on, they don't go, well, you know, if we, uh, you know, lower the price of napkins by a quarter of a cent per napkin, you know, that's nothing. Well, it's nothing unless you use a billion napkins a year, large amount of money. And, and, and so they take all these little gains and they they, they take advantage of them. In, in schools, we go, ah, you know, that will only affect 50 kids, 100 kids. You know, I have 500 kids in my school. And nobody's complaining, especially the, the, those particular parents, leave it alone. And, and what that means is we see the statistics we see where, what, 35% of our kids are proficient in reading. It doesn't have to be that way, but it does mean you have to make an effort to get those marginal gains because that's what we mean by it works. That is such an important point. Everything works to a little bit of an extent, Right. Um, just if you just read to kids, that would work for a couple of kids, but it wouldn't work for enough kids. But that's where this whole question of expectations comes in, it seems to me. If, if we look around the country and we say, well, you know, on average, African-American kids aren't learning to read very well. So if our school matches that or even does a little bit better, then then we're golden. We don't have to make sure every kid learns to read because who's doing that? Well, there are people who are doing it, but um, but we're not really keeping the emphasis on that. And, and schools are able to be somewhat complacent in part because they're doing so many things, right? They're, they're running little towns and villages and, and, um, and it's easy to get complacent about the fact that um, your kids aren't necessarily learning to read, especially at the elementary level, because you're not seeing the, you, you pointed to, like, they don't actually see the kids not graduating from high school or graduating unable to really get a job or, or do what they wanted. They wanted to be a doctor. They wanted to be a lawyer, but they never really read well enough. Um, and that's just the, the tragedy, right? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk so long. Dr. Bulger, did you have something to say? <laughs> no, I was just, I was going to add to that. And, and I want to, yeah, I mean, this goes back to the to the kind of, you know, what we, we brought up, the, the racial divide. And the, um, a lot of the, the data rate suggests that, the, you know, even in Maryland, the University of Maryland, Maryland Equity Project looked at the data and said, you know, when you account for, you know, socioeconomic factors, you know, the, the racial gap goes away in, in many ways. And, and that's not to say that there aren't, you know, still, um, 
you know, kind of systemic, well, I mean, systemic racism is, is in large part the, the, the main factor there. Uh, so, I mean, they just, just say, well, okay, so account for socioeconomic status and that's it. Um, but I think one of the things that you see is this, um, and this was actually in the National Reading Panel report and, and the, um, the National Academies uh, report that came out preceded the National Reading Panel report, but um, is that, you know, schools of, uh, uh, of high, you know, the higher poverty, you can look at the rate of farms per school, and that's what the Maryland Equity farm, Project farms is. Farms is what Maryland uh, calls free and reduced meals. And so the meals. farm kids in Maryland are not on a farm. They are. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, people outside but, Maryland don't necessarily understand that. <laughs> the colleague of farms. Um, so the the but but just looking at the accumulation of poverty in in schools um, is that directly tracks with with the you know the reading performance of the, the um, uh, of the children in that school, and so you see that. Um, you know, in certain in certain schools, you know, even just miles away from each other, where you know a child in third or fourth grade can be reading on a first grade level and not be identified for special ed services, because in many ways it's not that discrepant from his peers. But if he were to go to an, if that child were, and I've seen this literally, where that child then ends up moving to another school that only has a low, you know, a lower proportion, they get the attention, they, they get, you know, identified as, you know, um, having special needs. And even if that's not full IEP, but just getting the response, the intervention support services that they need um, and having the additional, you know, 30 hours a week or, you know, hour a week of, of added uh, intervention work, um, that child moves a lot more than they would have in the school in which they were there with, you know, in in this higher poverty school, and so, um, so the the real you know impact is really the the um, the effect because teachers and you know they're kind of forced to what I call teach to the middle. You know, they they have to teach to their average. You know, where the average of their classes they can't keep going with the, this curriculum, no matter how scripted and how the state or the count or the school system, the county school system in Maryland or whatever, wants them to stay on this. You know, if your kids are at one point, you can't just keep pushing and pushing, or you know, you can try, but you're just losing more and more of them. Um, and so, you know, giving the having the ability to give those extra supports, and you know, that's where the difficulty is, and even despite the Title I funding and the extra, you know, it's still in many ways not enough to account for um, that extra support. Now, and we can get into, you know, what types of things, you know, obviously pre-K, universal pre-K and, and what types of things can happen earlier to help those children um, even before they get to school. But, you know, this is where I think a lot of the conversation in terms of um, the gaps, the achievement gaps, um, really lay in these these areas. And it starts as um, many of my colleagues from, from the University of Chicago and other places uh, have documented in child language from 16 months old, you know. Um, so a lot of these are, you know, are um, just th this impact that that um, that poverty can have. And, you know, I, I think it's one of the things that that, you know, we have to 
take into account. And I know a lot of times in the current state, oftentimes I'll get um, criticized for having a deficit model. And I, I say, I don't, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm saying this is a, you know, there, there are issues in which we have to address. So, um, and I'm not saying that there aren't uh, positive thing that these are bad children or in, in any way like that, but I, there are certain things that uh, I think um, where we need to kind of put in uh, particular um, scaffolds and, and, and places of, of helping. And like I said, putting into place universal pre-K things that, that children in upper, um, you know, in middle classes and, and things that they have as advantages. Yeah, I think the, uh, Dr. Shanahan makes the point that we've structured our society to accept this, that, you know, we have decided that if you experience measures of economic distress, um, poverty, that it equates to an inability to be able to learn how to read and be academically proficient, advanced, like your counterparts whose families do not. Um, we've made that okay. And I think that's a bigger that's a big issue. Dr. Sanahan, I know you're about to jump in, so go ahead. Well, I just, you know, this idea of it being a deficit model, it is a deficit model, but it's not a deficit in the kids. That's not what you're talking about. It's a deficit in the environment. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly it. Well, and just to, because I'm kind of a one-trick pony, um, <laughs> just to go back to your example of a school where um, – kids aren't getting the support that they need, they're not getting the interventions. That's a school with a leader who does not understand how to look at the data, how to structure time, how to use uh, resources, how to push in services, how to, how to marshal the power of a school in order to make sure that kids get what they need and don't languish. As, as you know, you worked with uh, real real uh, real reading research nerds will will know this name, uh, Jack Fletcher, to identify this. Uh, you worked with him on his research that established that we wait for kids to fail. And that's a terrible, terrible thing to do to kids. Um, so, uh, but, but that, as I say, I'm a one-trick pony on the school leadership question. <laughs> um, and, and it just leapt out at me. That is not a teacher problem. That is a leadership problem. And that, that comes back to that question. Dr. Shanahan, I, you have something to say. No, I, I, I think I said what I wanted to on that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the five things that, that the CCSSO is, is you know, essentially encouraging folks to, to put some effort behind, each of those, um, if you think about it, isn't a method of teaching. It's a particular uh, ability or body of knowledge that you need to have to read effectively. And, and, and so, it, it, you know, this notion of a deficit, uh, ignorance is always a deficit. If I don't know how to read or I don't know how to read as well as you do, it's because there's something I don't know or I don't know how to do. I, that to me is, uh, you know, teaching, I guess, is always an accusation of ignorance. Um, you know, I'm going to show you how to do something. I think you don't know how to do it at this stage. And, and so this notion of what this report is really asking you to do is make sure that your kids are learning these specific things, that 
you know, by the time they're ending kindergarten, these kids should be able to perceive the sounds within words. Uh, they should be able to, by the time they're, you know, finishing second grade, they should be able to decode the language, translate the print into reasonable uh, pronunciations, approximations of, of pronunciations. That when they're reading text, they should be focused on meaning and, and should uh, able to do things to increase their their either understanding of the text or or to to walk away with more of the information. There, there are things you can do, and so. That's really what this is about, is teaching kids those things that are actually part and parcel of what we call reading. Uh, and, and so uh, I just, you know, well, you're, you're accusing these kids of a deficit. Well, I am. I'm, I'm saying I think they don't know how to do those things. and I'm going to teach them to do those things. And that's going to give them power. Uh, but it's not, oh, these kids are stupid or the, there's something inherently wrong in these children. And that's now, which would be a, a, de a real deficit uh, uh, approach. No, I don't believe that at all. These kids are fine. Uh, the problem for these kids is they don't live in supportive environments. Our schools aren't supportive environments. Uh, there are things we could teach them uh, that would be beneficial to them uh, and that would give them, again, power within their environment. I've heard this uh, this term also used in a recent meetings where, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about teachers and said, oh, well, you can't have a deficit model about teachers either. And and, and exactly what you said exactly applies just equally to that part too, which is, you know, the, 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 from my perspective, I want to impart to teachers the knowledge of how reading works, go back to the scientist, right? Because as a scientist, right, if, if I see a child and I see a profile of a child, I, I can sit there and say, well, they're weak on these skills and weak in this area, right? I'm thinking these are all the cognitive Machinery, and this is whenever I start my courses, and I tell my students right away. You know, I'm a I'm a scientist. I, I think mechanistic. You know, this is how I think about reading. And this is I want you to get in their heads. You know, and I said, you know, when um, you know, when you used to, when they used to do round robin reading, and you know, the the kid at the back of the room when it's coming as it's getting closer and closer, and all of a sudden he throws his chair across the room, it wasn't because he he's being bad. Because he does, it, it, being bad is being is better than being seen as being dumb, and um, and so it's um, this. You know, what I try to get them to diagnose what's going on, right? And I want you to think mechanistically about all the different components of reading. And so to go back to this deficit, you know, or this issue of, of teachers, as 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 Dr. Shanahan said, is is this ignorance is that we want to, to make you aware of all of, I want to make teachers aware of all the components of reading and how they work together in order to build a, a strong reader because they're the ones who need to diagnose now. And they, unfortunately, this, the general ed assumes that, well, that's the special ed teacher's job. And that's where I think we've really run into to problems, which is um, when we start to talk about, well, this is how we need to teach reading. They're like, well, that's only for special ed. And it's no, 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 no. This is not a special ed issue, right? It's, it's, um, and so I've seen this over and over again. And, and so my, my perspective, and I think this is the, the, the CCSSO and many of us who are leading the, this work of, of trying to ingrain teachers in how, how reading works and how to get teachers to be able to diagnose, to think about, uh, you know, how is it that it works and how is it put together and why this, 
type of approach to teaching will work better than this type of approach. And so if they don't have that knowledge, you know, it's, it's kind of like teaching an engineer to go out into the world without giving them a single physics class, right? It's like, you know, I, my daughter is a third year engineering student, you know, she's not complaining about taking engineering. She wants to be taking physics. She wants to be an engineer, but she knows she needs the physics knowledge, right? Um, so, you know, you don't want bridge failure. <laughs> we don't want student failure anymore. You don't so. want an engineer who doesn't understand the force of gravity. You just exactly. don't. Like, exactly. now they may not have to understand all of thermodynamics and, you know, everything about they, physics. They need to understand some of the basics. And um, so um, I, this has been amazing. I just want to kind of close out by asking, do you think this CCSSO report is an important step? Or not? I mean, am I? Are we? Are are Tangi and I right to sort of go? Wow, CCSSO said something important. We need to spend some time unpacking it. Is that right? Or is this just going to be another report sitting on a shelf? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> um, I've seen this show before. Um, I've been doing this for more than fifty years, and and I think it will be helpful. I think it goes in the right direction. I, I, I suspect that in this time of COVID, uh, there are going to be plenty of, of states that do exactly what you said, Karen, just put it on the shelf and, and not worry about it, that they've got other, they've got bigger fish to fry right now. Um, I, I would hope that as, as they look at their data, and see that boys and girls who've missed so much school in this last year are at lower levels than in the past, that we need to do things to, to accelerate uh, their, their progress. And, and the report, it's not packaged this way, but essentially could, it, it, if somebody were to follow what it's recommending, I think they could accelerate the learning of a lot of their kids and make the, their instruction more efficient. And so, I hope it, it does some good, but I, I fear that it will be ignored. Yeah, I think that, um, it, I think it's good. It acknowledges at a higher level. And as you said, <clears throat> we're trying to um, make a concerted effort on um, training uh, admi administration um, and, and to make them aware of what the issues are and, and why they need to be um, aware of this. and. And there is a clamoring. So we have had both from our literacy summit and following that administrators are wanting this knowledge. So I will say that. And I think that's, and if it's coming from the top and from these organizations, I think that's, that's important. Um, I think the, the second piece going to, to Tim's discussion of COVID, I think one of the, one of the secondary pieces to come out of here is things like learning loss and, and tutoring. And, and, and I think one of the, this one of the kind of um, places here where I think there might be an in. Uh, and, and so I think you're going to see a lot of states throwing money, good money after bad with tutoring programs. And I think if we can get in the ears of, of uh, school systems and legislators to make it clear that the money should go towards um towards strong programs and one that have a, a good MTSS or what we, you know, the old RTI uh, response to intervention or a multi-tiered support system model in which, um, which we teach tutors and potentially future teachers 
um, to progress, to assess, progress, monitor, and to gear uh, gear tutoring and at the at the skills that the students are lacking, um, and and to progress monitor and to to you know watch those um, watch those things climb. And I think when we use those types of um, ideas and approaches and put this in the ears of people, right, that puts us a little bit more on the road towards this where we want to be with literacy education, where we're in a road of of skill based you know of, of um, you know skill intervention and um, you know responding to the needs of of the child so really help using tutors in a way that um, is very targeted to particular things that you can train them on and help them make sure that the kids are uh, learning what they need to learn uh, rather than just tutoring, just, just go tutor, just go, tutor. <laughs> go, go tutor, just go, yeah, just go tutor, just, yeah, yeah. Just, just go, go tutor. tutor. Right. And, and uh, which, I, which I fear is what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of money out there and a lot of people are going to be like, Hey, yeah, we've got people who could do that for you. And with minimal training. And, and so I've been on the, you know, been in conversation with um, Sebastian Wren and other people in Texas and, and, um, that, you know, that, that they're doing this already with AmeriCorps and other things um, on doing the types of, of, you know, basically doing the reading intervention position, uh, you know, teaching these tutors to be reading interventionists and, and they'll go on and maybe, you know, be able to get a certificate. University of Maryland has a, is an AmeriCorps national service uh, school, you know, so, you know, we can, you know, potentially put this in our system too, but um, train you know, train them and that will go towards their practicum for, you know, for getting their getting their certificate or, you know, their training from the university. Dr. Shanahan, you were nodding um, when he was talking about the role of tutors. And I, I wonder if you have something else to add on that, because I do worry about just sort of saying, go tutor, because I've been a tutor and I know I wasn't particularly effective. Well-meaning volunteers aren't necessarily reading teachers. Tutoring has really a substantial research base saying it's effective, but if you look at what happened with No Child Left Behind in the early 2000s, where it was a big pot of money and, you know, you just were supposed to provide it, uh, you know, it, people did everything from just hired teachers to stay an extra hour or two after school, whether they knew how to tutor reading or not, or they hired companies that hired pretty much in that way. And, you know, we don't really know what happened in those tutoring programs. We know that they didn't make much of a difference in terms of kids learning in most places. Uh, it's, it's the content of the tutoring. It's what you teach and how you teach it. And, and uh, at DJ's point, you know, and, and whether they need what you're teaching, <laughs> you know, monitoring their learning and, and so on. So those are the, the keys that can be. Uh, built into each tutor, but it also can be built into the system. There are there's some real good successful efforts where uh, people are trained to give certain kinds of teaching, and there's somebody who's monitoring that to make sure that they're giving it to the right kids and, and, and so on. So there, there are different models of doing that, but uh, it can be very good, but it all comes down to, well, Karen, we've talked about this a number of times, how much teaching the kids are getting, what they're taught, and how well they're taught. There, there ain't nothing else, and or 
you know, if your tutoring program is making sure kids are getting extra instruction and stuff that's really key to learning and reading and you deliver it reasonably well, it can make a big difference to kids. If you leave some of those pieces out, not so much. Well, I th that's a, a nice cautionary kind of uh, note to end on, but I, but there is some real uh, strength in our, I think the CCSSO is reflecting a national kind of uh, attempt to get a hold of this. We, we try every 20 years or so, and uh, maybe we can really do it this time, and that would be great. And I really appreciate uh, your coming on and talking about these things. I think this was a really high-level, wonderful conversation. I hope a lot of uh, educators out there got a lot out of it. Um, and I want to thank you, both of you, uh, for, for doing this. Great. Thank you. It's been fun. That wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. I've provided links in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about the work of Timothy Shanahan and Donald Joseph Bolger, as well as the CCSSO report and the National Reading Panel report. This is the third of a series of conversations we are having about reading instruction this spring. The first was a conversation with reading researcher Alfred Tatum trying to assess the state of reading in the nation. The second was a discussion of a series of legal cases attempting to establish children's right to learn to read. I want to point you to another resource, which is the second season of Extraordinary Districts, which profiled three districts and talks a lot about the reading instruction they are doing. I hope at the end of our series, all our listeners will have a better understanding of why reading is such a hot topic right now and some of the ways educators can move forward so that all our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help build and shape democracy. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.